The reading for today is Matthew 6, 9 through 13. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, Redemption Arcadia, good to be with you again. We're in the second week of our series on the Lord's Prayer. But I wanted to start uh, with something else, just uh, some thoughts I had. Um, I don't know how many of you have watched the, um, the, the, the documentary that Ken Burns did on Vietnam. Uh, if you did, you probably heard a little bit about Admiral Jim Stockdale, who was captured and was in the Hanoi Hilton prison camp for seven and a half years and actually survived that. Uh, after he got out, he said this, I never lost faith in the end of the story. I never doubted that not only would I get out, but also that I would turn this experience into the defining event of my life, which, in retrospect, I would not trade. Now, obviously, it was possible that Stockdale was not going to get out of prison. Uh, it's not that he was denying the reality that that could have ended even worse than it did for him in terms of not being able to get out. But what he was doing was recognizing the reality that he was in, and he chose to press into that reality while keeping faith. I think the key for him was that he avoided blind optimism while pressing into hope. And I think that's what we as followers of Christ need to do in this situation now and in any challenging situation that we have. Uh, I, I think it's not helpful to just be blind optimists. I also think it's not helpful to be blind pessimists. But rather, we need to press into the reality. We need to assess the reality. We need to understand the facts that we're surrounded with. But then uh, understand that our hope and our promise is in Christ, our Lord. And that is what can sustain us through this. That's what Christ followers are called to do. And that's one of the reasons why we're doing this Lord's Prayer uh, during this time while we're coming at you through the uh, internet. So in the next few weeks, we're in Matthew chapter 6, as, as Heather read. Uh, again, I would recommend that we memorize this prayer and repeat it even a couple of times a day. I will tell you that about a week ago, somebody made the suggestion to me, you know, we're all supposed to be washing our hands a lot, and we're supposed to be washing them for at least 20 seconds. Uh, somebody recommended that as you're washing your hands, just repeat the Lord's Prayer, and that'll give you about 20 or 25 seconds. And to be honest with you, when I first heard that, I thought that sounded a little bit hokey. But I have found myself now, the last several days, as I'm washing my hands, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, yeah, your will be done, your, your kingdom come on heaven, in heaven as it is on earth. And you know what? It kind of works. The only problem is that I'm not very good at multitasking, so um, I, I struggle to talk while I'm washing my hands. Anyway, you get the point. We should memorize the, uh, the prayer and repeat it a few times a day. Last week we got started. We talked about the context of the prayer, uh, and we talked a little bit about our Father in heaven uh, we are going quite meticulously through this prayer, verse by verse, clause by clause. And this week, we're looking at the second half 
We're looking more deeply at the second half of verse 9, and the focus is going to be on this word hallowed. This entire message is going to be about uh, hallowed. Uh, One of the things I want you to understand, again, and I mentioned this last week, is this prayer does not start with, hey, God, here's what I want, but rather it starts with, God, I acknowledge who you are, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. His name is hallowed, ours is not. And that word hallowed means holy or set apart or entirely other. So let's talk a little bit about that. Uh, For instance, he is creator. We are created. He is pure and holy. We were made to be pure and holy, but we are now defiled and dishonored by sin. So now we're separated from God. He alone is wise. Our tendency is toward foolishness. And and, and as a result, he calls us to search out and submit to his wisdom and his will because our tendency is toward uh, foolishness. And, And even in times of this pandemic, this crisis that we're faced, we need his wisdom and we need his will in the midst of this. He stands, we drift. You know, no one has ever drifted toward holiness. We cannot drift into sanctification. Humans, without focused purpose, here you go, we seem to understand this in the marketplace. Why is it we don't understand it in our our spiritual lives? In the marketplace, we're driven to be focused, but then we get to our spiritual lives and we think it doesn't apply. We need focused purpose, and without it, and without the filling of the Holy Spirit, we always drift away from God and his will and toward the lies and the lures of this world. I think an example of of this is talked about by King Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Listen to the words that he writes 3,100 years ago. Guard your steps when you go into the house of God. To draw nearer to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Do not be rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. His name is hallowed. He is hallowed. He has the characteristic of hallowedness. But the beauty of all of this hallowedness for us is that through Christ and through his death and resurrection and through our faith and trust in him, he imputes that hallowedness to us. He transforms our lives into that hallowedness. It's an, it's an amazing thing that happens. Listen, for instance, to Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul writes, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That word sanctified there, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, That's the same word as hallowed that we find in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, in this prayer. It's the same word. See, when you and I are in Christ, we are also seen as hallowed. 
as righteous, as cleansed and sanctified. Not because we're so great, but because of Jesus, his holiness, his righteousness, his blamelessness imputed to us by grace through faith in him. And this is far from the only place in the New Testament that uses this language for you and me, Christians, uses this language for us, those who have trusted him and followed him. That's the gospel, that when we place our faith and trust in Jesus, we become hallowed as well, consecrated, set apart, sanctified. I want to go through a couple of more, I think, really helpful passages in the New Testament uh, that, that use this word and have this notion of hallowedness as well. So if you would right now pause the, the recording and turn to John chapter 10. We're going to look at the second half of John chapter 10. So starting at verse 22, John records this. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem, and it was winter. Now, the Feast of the Dedication is a celebration that commemorates the rededication of the temple that occurred in 164 B.C. after it was defiled and desecrated by the Greek ruler Antiochus Epiphanes in 167 B.C. So this is an important festival, and that means that there were a lot of people around that saw this exchange that's coming up. Look at verses 23 through 26. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. You know, no matter how many questions are answered, no matter how many miracles are observed and experienced, those who will not believe simply will not believe, no matter what, no matter what. That was true then, it's true today, and even Jesus gets a little bit frustrated by this. Sometimes you and I can get frustrated by this as well. And look at verse 27. <clears throat> my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Um, I graduated from high school, North High School, go Mustangs. I graduated from high school in May of 1977. And just like other high school graduates, uh, that was the end of me seeing the vast majority of those people for either a long time or forever. You know, there's maybe a few that you see after graduation and stay in touch with, and that's true of me as well. Sometime in 2007, I was with my friend Mark Spann, and we were hiking up and down North Mountain trying to get a, a workout in. So this is 30 years later. I hadn't seen many of my friends from high school for 30 years at this point. And I'm hiking up and down, and I'm on the way down North Mountain, Mark is coming on the way up, and as I pass him, I just say to him, one more, my friend. That's all I said to him. Four words. That was it. A lady who was standing a good 20 yards away and was walking the other way stopped and turned around and said, Frank Switzer? And I said, yeah, who are you? And she said, 
I'm Joyce, I went to high school with you. And I recognized you from your voice, from those four words. See, what Jesus is saying here is that if you're not his sheep, you're not going to listen to him. You're not going to believe his miracles. You're not going to hear his voice, so to speak. Giving ourselves to Christ allows us to then hear his voice, allows us to be able to see, allows us to be able to hear, allows us to have that transformed heart and to ask the Holy Spirit to fill us. That's what Jesus is saying here. And he's saying to these religious leaders, he's saying, you have just resisted this for for your own agenda, for your own reasons, for your own arrogance, for your own pride. You simply will not submit to the fact that my voice is the true voice of God. And also understand this shepherd imagery that Jesus is using here. Jesus used this earlier in chapter 10 as well. In verse 11, he said to them, I am the good shepherd. And what's important about that metaphor that he's the good shepherd is, is the professional religious people of his day, those Jewish professional religious people would have understood Jesus as saying, I am God, because they understood God. Yahweh as being the shepherd of God's people, Israel. And so when he says that, he's making a claim to divinity. And he's going to do it again in this passage here. Look at verses uh, 28 and 29. Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. So this is what I would call the security of anyone who believes. You place your faith in Christ, you are saved. And I know there are days when you doubt, there are days when you struggle. I struggle too. And there are days when you wonder if you're even saved. I had this conversation just recently with somebody. How can I be saved if I'm still sinning? The fact that you're questioning whether you're saved because you're still sinning is an indication that you are saved. Otherwise, you probably wouldn't care. This is the security of anyone who believes. And how can God do that? How is it that God can keep anything, including Satan or anyone, including Satan from snatching us out of his hand? Because he's hallowed, because he's holy, because he's righteous, because he's set apart, because he's consecrated, his hallowedness. And as we've seen in 1 Corinthians, he imputes that hallowedness to us, to believers, to those who follow him. Consider also what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. He says, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. Once we place our faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit seals us, and that seal is unbreakable, unbreakable. Those the Father gives to Jesus cannot be snatched away. Uh, we were in a preaching collective some months ago talking about Exodus, and our executive pastor for Redemption Church, Big R, Neil Pitchell, was there. And he's, he's actually Jewish. Um, and, and, so, and, and he has this expertise in the, in the Old Testament. It was really interesting hearing him talk about the Passover when that 10th plague came. And they were, the Jews in Egypt were told to slaughter a lamb and, and take the blood of the lamb and, and brush the doorway with the lamb in order that the angel of death might pass over their house so that their, uh, their firstborn would not be killed. And he talked about how, you know, there were some households in Egypt, some Jewish households where 
They did that with the blood. And the father and the mother inside the house were firmly confident that the angel of death was not going to get them. That, that, that their, their confidence was, was steadfast in God that this would pass over them. But then there were other households as well that, that did it. They dipped uh, the brush. They put the, the blood of the lamb around the doorpost. But then they, when they huddled inside the home and waited, they doubted and they were scared and they were wondering and their faith wavered. And Neil asked this question. Of those two different kinds of households, which ones were saved? Which ones were immune from the death of their firstborn? And the answer is both of them. Because it's not the confidence necessarily in God, but rather the blood of the lamb that saves us. It's Christ who saves us. It's not our work. It's, it's not how deep we can go, though we should try to go deep. It's, it's not anything that we can do harder, more diligently, but rather it's knowing that the blood of the lamb is what saves us. We are saved by grace. And the definition of grace is unmerited favor. What can you do to merit unmerited favor? Nothing. And so if we did nothing to earn our salvation, we cannot do anything to disconnect our salvation. And then, of course, verse 30. This is just a huge verse. I've talked about this already this year. Jesus says, I and the Father, we are one. This is just massive. Jesus is fully God and fully man. This was uh, part of our countercultural conviction series that we had to suspend when this virus uh, situation came up. And we talked about this. God, Jesus, is fully God and fully man. And he says so right here. In the Greek, it indicates that what he's saying is that I and the Father, we are one entity. We are the same essence. And yet, if we understand Trinitarian theology, we worship one God who is manifest in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And yet, even though they are the same essence, each has a separate identification and purpose. The Father saves us through the perfect atoning sacrifice of Jesus and the Holy Spirit convicts us of our need for redemption. But look what happens in verses 31 through 33. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him, and Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? And the Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, Make yourself God. I'm always fascinated by people who try to tell me that Jesus never claimed to be God. Here are the Jewish religious professionals of his day wanting to stone him, execute him for blasphemy because he is claiming to be God. This is an unequivocal, absolute confirmation of Jesus' proclamation. He is God. There's no way they decide to kill him otherwise. And, of course, there's a bit of irony here. You know, this festival of dedication that was going on at this time, celebrating the rededication of the temple after Antiochus defiled it? You know how he defiled the temple? Antiochus Epiphanes defiled the temple by marching into the temple, going up to the altar and proclaiming that he was God. That's how he defiled it. So there's a bit of irony here. And so you might, you might understand why these professional religious people are a bit raw at what Jesus is doing. And then verse 34, Jesus 
uses their own scriptures to make his point. He quotes uh, Psalm 82. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law? I said, you are God's. Now, the context of verse 82, Jesus is saying to them, according to their own religious texts, their own religious traditions, humans who ascend to the position of judge are sometimes referred to as gods because of the sizable worldly power that they have as judges. How much more then can the actual son of God be God? Good point, Jesus. Using their own texts and their religious traditions and teachings to prove his point. Now, the professional religious people assume Jesus is a mere man, but here he uses their texts as an argument against them that he is God. Uh, Don't ever get into a tit-for-tat with Jesus. You're going to be bested, I promise you. I will tell you, here you go, the biggest mistakes in my life, three major categories here. When I make decisions based on emotion, when I speak without thinking, And when I assume I'm smarter than Jesus, biggest mistakes in my life, those three categories. And Jesus presses further into his argument based on their rules. And it is here where we find again that word hallowed, verses 35 and 36. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him who the father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am The son of God, there's that word, consecrated, hallowed. Same word as in Matthew 6, 9. Jesus is saying, I came from the father. I'm hallowed. I'm consecrated. I'm set apart. I'm holy. I'm the Messiah you've been looking for. I and the father, we are one. And this consecration, this hallowedness that Jesus speaks of is imputed to you and me when we believe in Jesus and when we place our faith and trust in him as our Lord and Savior, now, now, if you claim Christ right now, he sees you as hallowed. That's wild. And I know, and I know, I I, I get it, I get it. I'm with you on this. We don't feel consecrated. We don't feel holy. We don't feel hallowed. We don't feel righteous. And, and, And all of us can find persons in our lives who could easily testify to the fact that we aren't exactly pure, holy, and blameless. But that's how God sees those who are in Jesus now. And that's exactly why we need this prayer. To help sustain us in this, what's known as the already but not yet. Have you ever heard that term before, already but not yet? It's really pretty simple. Once we give our lives to Christ, we are already righteous. We are already holy. We are already saved. We are already consecrated as far as God the Father is concerned. When he looks at us, he sees Jesus. That's the beauty of what Jesus did for us. Right now, he sees us as beautiful, pure, holy, and perfect. The tension, though, already but not yet, describes the tension because we're living in the not yet. We're still living in this dark, fallen, corrupt world that has sin everywhere, that has viruses everywhere. We're still living here. We're still living with our own sin that we commit on a daily basis. And so it's it's that not yet. We have won the victory, but we're still playing the game. That's essentially what's happened. So there's tension there. Yes, we have our salvation, but we have yet to have it completed for us just yet. 
So in this world, we have this similar dependence on God the Father that Jesus had and needed. We need this prayer. We have this dependence. And Jesus had this dependence as well. In John chapter 5, he says this, I do nothing on my own, but only that which my Father who sent me gives me to do. He depended on his Father. In John chapter 12, just a few chapters from now, he says, I have not spoken on my own, but I only speak what the one who sent me commands me to speak. Jesus is consecrated, and yet he still depends wholly and completely on his Father. And then this passage ends in verses 37 through 39. Jesus says, if I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. That word believe, believe. When we pray the prayer, listen to this. When we pray the prayer in Matthew chapter six, we are acknowledging two critical things, two essential things. Number one, we're acknowledging that he's God. And number two, we're acknowledging that we believe. We believe. And that is the gospel. We acknowledge who he is and we place our faith in him for our salvation. Now let's wrap up with one more passage. I'd like you to turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I'm going to look at this word one more time, but I got to give it a little bit of context. You know me in context. So Paul's writing to the church in Thessalonica. And in chapter 5, starting at verse 16, he writes these words. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. There's that word. And may your whole soul, spirit and soul and body be kept blameless. The result of this sanctification is blamelessness at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful and he will surely do it. So Paul writes, rejoice always. He starts with that. Rejoice always. Have you noticed in Paul's letters, one of the basic marks of a Christian is that we live with joy. We live with joy. The other mark, I would argue, would be love. We live with joy and love. But joy, here he talks about joy. In all things, even in the midst of this virus, live with joy. You know, history is littered with Christians who lived, loved, and served joyfully in the midst of famines and plagues. There's one person in particular in church history, look her up, Teresa of Avila. You should look her up and read about her and, and know about her. Uh, it's amazing how sacrificially she served with joy and with love in the midst of some really horrible situations. Now, understand, this is joy not because our circumstances are pleasant. Would anybody argue that our circumstances are pleasant right now? Of course not. It's not because our circumstances are pleasant, but joy because God is sovereign and we know him. One author says it this way, and this goes kind of back to what Stockdale, what I quoted Scott Stockdale as saying at the beginning of this message. One author says this, be joyful though we know all the facts. Be joyful though we know all the facts. And the most important fact, even in the midst of all the troubling facts, 
is that we know God. And because we know him, we are able to live in his hope. And let's make sure, again, I want to make sure we understand this, this hope, this, this holy hope, this biblical hope. It's not a worldly hope. It's not like, you know, I hope I get the promotion. I hope I get a raise. I hope uh, she says yes. Uh, I hope he doesn't ask me. I hope, um, I hope the Blackhawks return to the playoffs. It's not a worldly hope where it may or may not happen, probably won't happen. But rather, this is a hope that's already done. The game is over as far as God is concerned. When Christ came busting out of that tomb, he was victorious over Satan's sin and death. Game over. Satan's still playing. He doesn't care. He's still playing. You got to hand it to him for his perseverance. But Jesus has won. This thing is over. That's the hope we have. It's already done hope. Here you go. It's like watching a, a video replay of a game that has already ended, and you know the disposition of the game. Somebody told you before who won the game, and you're watching the replay knowing already who's going to win that game. Let me tell you something personally. Uh, When I'm studying, when I'm reading, every now and then I take a break, and I go to the internet, and I watch some YouTube videos. Do you know how often I watch YouTube videos of of the Chicago Blackhawks Stanley Cup winning goals for their three championships in the last decade? All the time, hundreds of times. I can't watch those goals enough. And they win the Stanley Cup. Do you realize that I never have to hope in a worldly way whether or not they won the cup? I never click on one of those videos going, gee, I hope Patrick Kane really does score this time. Of course, I know he's going to score. That's the faith we have. That's the hope we have. It's a hope that's already done. But we also need to remember that we live in, the, the fact that we live in joy does not mean that we never mourn. As Christians, we're also called to mourn. We mourn death. We mourn sin. We mourn suffering and pain and injustice. We mourn when we just hurt. And this world is filled with things that hurt us. We mourn. But we mourn with the confidence that a new day is coming. We mourn knowing that Jesus is coming again to set things right. To restore creation to its perfection. And that mourning can drive us to joyfully love and serve because of the hope that we have in Christ, even in the midst of terrible circumstances. It's been a joy to watch how our church has responded in the midst of of this crisis, how so many people want to help and so many people want to serve. And, And they're willing to do it even at times at risk to themselves. And so Paul says we pray without ceasing. In order to have joy, we need to pray without ceasing. Again, this is a constant attitude of prayer. It is a continuous consciousness of God's presence with us. And we pray because we depend on him. And then Paul says we live in thanksgiving in everything. Paul writes the same thing in Ephesians chapter 5. He says we are to live in gratitude and thanksgiving. And we should even be singing songs and hymns of praise to each other. And here's what we need to remember. It is virtually impossible to be grateful without being humble. A life of genuine thankfulness assumes humility. And then verses 19 through 21 are a continuous thought. Quenching the spirit, verse 19, comes from despising the wisdom of other Christians, verse 20. It is the inability for somebody to be teachable. Have you ever run into somebody who just refuses to be teachable? That's, that's somebody uh, despising the wisdom of other uh, uh, 
the Christians, quenching the spirit. But, but, a little balance here. We need to understand that just because someone has for you a word from the Lord, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's surely from the Lord. So verse 21, we need to test everything. We need to test others' words, including your pastors. Wherever you attend church, you should be testing the words of your pastor and test it, test those words against what scripture says. Test everything, Paul tells us. John says the same thing. Can, can we agree that there's a ton of misinformation out there right now? Hey, test everything. Test everything. I know you saw it on the internet. You think it's true. Test everything, okay? I kind of had an experience with this some years ago. I was teaching as an adjunct instructor 23, 24 years ago at Grand Canyon University. I was teaching a, an adult continuing education class on spiritual formation for Christian leaders. And on the first day of class, there were only about 10 students in the class, nice small class. Uh, I, I do the kind of the ice break thing. I want everybody to get a chance to talk about who they are. And I had one student in there who right out of the gate she told me that her church had anointed and appointed her to the office of prophetess, that when she spoke, she was speaking for God, and that no matter what I said, she told me directly, no matter what I said or taught in class, she was the final authority because she held the office at her church of prophetess. Well, that's convenient. I wonder if any of her other professors fell for that. Okay, so after she was done, I let her know that in spite of what she said, Jesus and his word are the authority in this class, and that, oh, by the way, Jesus has also left me in charge of this class. So that was the basis for our relationship going forward. Anyway, Paul then summarizes by explaining that we need to hold fast to what is good, and what is good, of course, is found in God's word in the Bible. And then he says we need to abstain from evil. Now, it makes sense that we should abstain from evil. Does anybody have a problem with that? Okay. But then look at verse 23. Again, this is just the payoff. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you, same word as hallowed, you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless. Blameless. That's the result of this hallowedness at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our sin has been atoned for. We're blameless in Christ. Those whom Jesus has saved, we are now in Christ. If you don't think being in Christ is important, understand that Paul uses that little phrase 176 times in his letters. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ. And if we're in Christ, we're going to look more and more, more and more like verses 16 through 22 in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. That's the idea. It's Paul in Romans chapter 8 telling us that we are being conformed to the image of God's Son. In verse 24, he reminds us that God is faithful to do this work, to consecrate us and to make us hallowed, to have us grow into this hallowedness that we already have in and through Christ. It's, it's the promises we have in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 6 where, where Paul says, and I am confident of this that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. It's Paul saying in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that though the outer self is wasting away, the inner self is being renewed day by day. That's our faith. That's our hope. 
That's our hallowedness. That's the filling of the Holy Spirit. That's the resurrected Christ. So here you go. This clause, hallowed be your name, in this prayer, this clause has a lot of juice, a lot of juice. And it's what can give us the confidence to face this current crisis with hope and joy while dealing with the reality of it. Again, it's, why we, it's also why we need, we need this prayer. And we will continue next week with this prayer. We're going to look at verse 10, and we're just going to continue to break down the full and beautiful meaning of this prayer for us today. Let me pray, and then I'll give a little benediction. Lord God, we thank you for your word and its truth, and we also thank you for this prayer that you have given us that uh, reminds us to look first to you, but also we are reminded through that word that you've, through your son, you have given us this great gift of your righteousness, your holiness, your consecration, your hallowedness. God, thank you for that. Help us to be the church now and to live that out. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So as our benediction, let me find it. I want to read these words from Ephesians chapter 3, if I could. Galatians, Ephesians, okay, there we go. Very good. Let this be our benediction and blessing. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. God bless you.